Bukele. Hello everyone and welcome to a very very special episode of Sports Weekly. I know we say that almost every week but this one is truly special. Leo Messi has further cemented his place among the pantheons of the great. There was never a doubt about his greatness but by winning the World Cup in Qatar he's just ensured that he's spoken of in the same breath as Diego Maradona, his own countryman and a whole host of others, maybe even Pele and I don't know if that's blasphemous. Joining me as always will be Samuel Arora, RK and Ayaz Memon as we go through and navigate the world of sport. Before we start, here's a reminder to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts or just download the BingePods app and start listening to us there. Before we get into the details of it, how many of us had called Argentina at the start of the tournament? I mean, we've been talking about this for a while, but I think there was only one, right? I fell flat on my face. I picked England and, well, it's a mistake I know I'll do again. RK, what was your pick? Mine was Netherlands. Look, I mean, let's be honest about it. A huge thumbs up to Sawmill. Well done to him. So he spoke about how deep the squad is and how Scaloni has brought the squad together and the winning run that he spoke about stood with Argentina even after that defeat against Saudi Arabia when the qualifications, I mean, the qualification to the next stage of the tournament was really in doubt. So well done, to be honest, Somil. But having said that, I'll tell you still, Somil, Netherlands could have done the job. They almost came close. So I still think I backed uh, a decent horse. Coulda, shoulda, woulda. Well, that's how it goes. Over to you, Somil. Take a deep breath in and relax as it all calmed down. I doubt it has. I doubt it has because this quite literally, I think, can only be described as one of the greatest football games in history. Where else would you see such drama apart from live sport? When Argentina went 2-0 up, you could just see the energy with which they were playing, like a bunch of terriers running around a really quiet cat. And France looked hapless, but that's the beauty of live sport. You can never count anybody out. And comment the hour, comment the man, because Kylian Mbappe really turned that game around. And he may look like the person who completely engineered the turnaround, but you've also got to give a word to Kingsley Coman, who brought up all the energy and was critical to that second goal that France scored eventually. But today, let's start off with France, because we should give a word to them, right? After the performance that they've done, you, you cannot neglect it. Sure, the focus will always be on Messi, and we should get to him in a second. But... This was sporting spirit at its finest. When you're 2-0 down in a World Cup final, when you look dejected, when you look lost, how do you come back in and get yourself back in the game and take it to the end of extra time to penalties? Kingsley Coman, M. Kylian Mbappe, Kolomuani, these players were just absolutely critical. And this is what football is all about. This is what live sport is all about. This is where you've got to dig down deep and get the best out of yourself. And that was exactly what made this game that much better. And you've got a feel for Kylian Mbappe. Scoring a World Cup hat-trick, World Cup final hat-trick. First time in ages, first time in forever, actually. I think since Sir Jeff Hurst in 1966, that something like this has happened. And still, you end up losing the final. How do you console a 23-year-old man after something like that? Yes, he is a 23-year-old World Cup winner, nonetheless. He's a 23-year-old who's earning multi-million dollars every single year. Yes. But still... It's only a 23-year-old. This is going to hurt hard. But what a team performance by France at the end of the day. 
once we saw the likes of Kamavinga also come in, they completely transformed the game. And the sporting spirit that we all look for was present. But to the winners, to Argentina, <laughs> it's enough to make millions of grown people cry. The story of Messi finally getting complete. But this is not just about Messi. Think about that country. Think about what they've been through over the years. Think about what football represents to them. If you've seen the videos of Buenos Aires after the World Cup win, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Hundreds of thousands of people on the street celebrating it like it was their win because it was their win. This is what sport does to you. And I know the headlines will always be about Messi and, and for sure we should get to him in a second. But the likes of Rodrigo De Paul, the likes of Enzo Fernandez, the likes of Angel De Maria, the likes of Julian Fernandez, And let's not forget, in the penalty shootout, Emiliano Martinez, the golden glove winner of this tournament, who should, could, and maybe would have been the player of the tournament had there not been a more greater emotional story with Messi around. These players really created that squad and constructed something beautiful. As I said in the preview, it was like they played for Messi. And I love what Alan Smith said on the commentary. He said, every single player is going for an 8 out of 10 performance. And that is what wins you a World Cup final. But this was the perfect game of football. Even after that, at the 80th minute, they looked over and done with. Remarkably. They ran over France. Maybe they could have been 3 4 nil up. But nobody cares about those missed chances. What we care about is the hum- human emotion and the way it returned and the way they were able to gather themselves back in the extra time. That was what football is all about. And, and the calmness with which... They executed the penalty shootout, especially Emiliano Martinez. For me, that makes him the player of the tournament. Every single time you can depend on that goalkeeper. And yes, for sure, he might look cocky. He might look arrogant. He might have that stupid celebration, but he gets the job done. And he was able to soak up so much pressure for one man, for Lionel Messi, at last. What can we say? It's the perfect career, isn't it? He's played over a thousand games. He scored over... 750 goals. He's got hundreds and hundreds of assists in the meantime. He's won everything that there is to win. So far, barring that one little trophy and it now feels complete. Let's not go down that greatest of all time discussion. I think this is not the moment for it. What we should do is sit down and appreciate that we're getting to see magic on a football field. And Comet the Ark, Comet the main men, Mbappe and Messi delivering. As I mentioned earlier, you cannot console Mbappe, but for Messi... I wouldn't say the end, but a fairy tale way to call it off. He said he wants to play for Argentina even more with that World Cup winner's badge and he's absolutely earned it. This is a perfect career. Well, how else can you call it? He's won La Liga, he's won the UCL, the, the Super Cup, the French title as well, the French Cup, the World Cup, the Copa America. Wow, this feels like a legend finally coming up to end. And it was always meant to be. It was always meant to be. Sure, you can look at the penalties, you can look at the decisions and maybe... Bat an eyelid at that, about the inconsistency in the decision-making. And yes, that did eventually happen. But I don't think France could feel hard done by eventually because they fought their way back in. They made their luck. They worked hard for it. And it was 3-3 at the end. So I think it really evened out. What mattered was the pressure moment. And let's not forget, for someone like Tushameni, this may be a hard moment for someone so young to miss a penalty. But let's not, let's not stone them verbally. It's a tough thing and it takes courage to get up there and to take part in a penalty shootout. But what I really have to say is it's a brave thing to be a part of a World Cup final. The French players will know that. They'll learn. But how do you console Mbappe? At the end of the day, though, a fairy tale is complete. Argentina are champions. It's like it was always meant to be. 
It's like it was the perfect game of football, wasn't it? Did you catch the whole game? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Just a stunning game of football. I mean, to be honest, the first half, I was like, what is happening really? I mean, France was never in the game. They looked extremely lazy, probably the effect of the virus that people are talking about and all sorts of things that were just going through my mind. And then up until the 80th minute, there was absolutely nothing in the game. So much so that I think Argentina took the foot off the accelerator. They, they just started to play defensively, tried to hair, hold the ball. And all of a sudden, a couple of goals and it then came to light. And here we are sitting and talking about this being probably one of the greatest ever games in the history of football. Absolutely. I mean, Argentina almost threw it away. This is the second time they'd let a 2-0 lead go. The last time they did this was against the Netherlands. But this, had it not turned out the way it finally did, would have been fairly, really devastating for them. Ayaz, what do you think? I think you were one of the few early on, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago when we were on the show, to say that it's either Argentina or Brazil. I think you leaned in towards Brazil more. Remind me. I was leaning heavily towards Brazil. And when this match started, or just before the match started, the final between Argentina and France, I chose to sit on the fence because it was a really good matchup. I remember I got a tweet from Derek O'Brien, the TMC politician from Bengal, who's also obviously a very avid football fan. And he said, France will score the first goal and they'll win the final. I said, Derek, I'm choosing to sit on the fence in this one because it just seems to be so evenly matched. Well... That brings to an end a fantastic World Cup. I think us would argue that despite everything that went on before the World Cup, this was probably one of the more enjoyable ones. Lots of upsets. I think the most number of goals ever scored at a FIFA World Cup and a truckload more of records. Looking forward to the next one. But while that happened, the world kept turning. Cricket is back. And when I say the world kept turning, Australia continued its dominance at the GABA after that little blip from about a year ago when India finally beat them at the GABA. RK, the two-day test, I think everyone says the beauty of cricket, isn't it? Uh, When it happens outside India, but in India, it's just shameful wickets. And I know there's a lot of debate going on around this. I just thought this was a ridiculous waste of time. You might as well have played a couple of T20s. I'm with you on this. I think there are different words that are used when uh, we play cricket at different parts of the world. If it's uh, Australia, if it's the Gabba, we say it's challenging conditions. If it had been in Ahmedabad on a turning track, people would have called it dust bowls, outrageous, very poor pitch. I just want to look at the ratings that the ICC gives for this particular track, to be honest. Look, I think even the likes of uh, Dean Elgar kind of smiled when we spoke about sporting wickets within courts. Look, I'm, I'm all for great competition between the bat and the ball. I'm all for it. But I do not understand how it becomes competition only when it's a seeming track. And it doesn't become a competition when it tends to turn a bit more than usual. So that's my only question always. Look, I mean, yes, ideally you would want a great test match. Yes, it was great bit of fast bowling. The ball moved a lot. There was a bit of a resistance from the South Africans as well, especially in that first innings after being down four wickets. But honestly, you know, if I'm strictly going by the pitch, what's wrong in dishing out turning tracks in Ahmedabad when I look at such pitches at the Gabba? I'm completely with you. Real double standards, according. Yeah. And just to talk about the match itself, the Australian batsmen themselves struggled big time, barely a lead of uh, 50 runs in the first innings. And uh, to chase down 35, they lost four wickets. Ayaz, have you seen a worse pitch? (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, there have been occasions when teams have been bowled out for 42 and 36. So, I mean, it's not just the score. 
you know, the paltry score is one aspect. The other is, as Arki mentioned, that, you know, what is good for the goose should also be good for the gander, isn't it? I mean, Australians also have come to India and complained and cribbed about pitches that they've got here. But when teams tour Australia or England for that matter, or some of the other countries who kind of make it a point to, to you know, raise the red flag whenever there is a, an element of, you know, uncertainty about the pitch elsewhere, but not in their own countries, I think that sham needs to end. And I am also as keen as RK is to find out how the ICC rates this, uh, this GABA pitch. Look, at the end of the day, one must also accept that this is a very batting impoverished South African team. They just don't have high quality batsmen or even quality batsmen in numbers, not even two or three of them. Uh, you know, take away a Dean Elgar or, you know, maybe one or two others. I don't think they have batting heft at all. They've got bowling heft, and which is such a shame because it could be a very competitive series. Just a reminder that Australia are number one in the World Test Championship ranking and South Africa were number two or still are. You know, so if we had a competitive match, maybe an upset, the whole drama around the WTC would have become so much more exciting and fascinating. But that looks now not to be because I can't see the South African team beating Australia and Australia with the kind of batting resources they have. I mean, Australia have to play diabolically badly to lose to this South African team. Much as I would, you know, I think that uh, South Africa had some fantastic bowlers, Rabada being one of them, Norke, also Hansen. It looks like it's going to be a no contest between South Africa and Australia, which is a pity because Test cricket, you know, everybody claims all over the world, whether it's the big players or the ICC or the respective cricket boards, how much they want to support and sucker Test cricket. But if you have pitches like these or what, what we got at the GABA, it's unlikely that, you know, we have a two-day match, it becomes farcical. You know, it's not Test cricket at all. And if the pitch is really the reason and, and not to absolve South Africa's problem with their batting. It's just that, you know, as it emerges to me, the talent pool is very shallow, especially in the batting. To look for players to replace guys of the caliber of an A.B. de Villiers or a Hashim Amla or a Graham Smith or leave aside a Jack Callis is not an overnight job. It means that, you know, your systems, the infrastructure there, the grassroots level development and across various age groups has to be, you know, 15, 20 years in the making, really solidly worked on. Only then can you get those kind of players. RK, just coming back to you here uh, for a second. Looking at the Australian team composition, just the top order, their batting seems to be struggling. Do you see David Warner continuing in the Boxing Day Test match? I mean, look, it's going to be a difficult decision in the sense that I think uh, when I look at David Warner, yes, he hasn't been doing all right. I completely buy that. But I'm also thinking if... The way he has approached it in the very recent past has got something to do with what has happened off the field. Look, I think at some level, he was probably hoping that he'll be the captain of the Australian cricket team in some format or the other. Then there was this whole aspect of him coming out in the open and saying that he almost suggested that it was a bit of a sham the way things happened. And he did not want to pursue it any further because he felt that certain sections were dragging his family into it. And therefore, he's just uh, completely... Uh, moved on from his hopes of ever being an Australian captain because he, he didn't think, or according to him, he, he didn't think that he was getting a fair deal in the review. So I wonder if that is playing a heavy part in the way he is at the moment as an individual. I know everybody moves on. I know it's been a while since we've had the sandpaper gate. I think he's paid the penalty all right. But just as he was thinking that he could be the captain at some point in time of the Australian cricket team, I think it's all done and dusted. Australian cricket seemingly has moved on. I wonder if that is 
one reason. And coming back to your particular question, there are even doubts about when whether he'll be a part of the tour to India, given the kind of form that probably the lack of form that he is in. So I think at some level, probably even for David Warner, it's not a bad thing to have a bit of a break. Who knows? He can be back here for the IPL. Look, I mean, all said and done, he can be here as a part of the test team. I'm not the selector, but he can be here for the IPL, completely different format, different environment. Just let him lose for Delhi Capitals. That's probably one way I'm looking at it, the whole situation. Well, let's hope that something works out for him. Moving on to the India versus Bangladesh uh, series. I think that was a pretty decent test match. You know, Bangladesh not usually known to cover themselves in glory in a lot of these situations. And to be honest, they let India off the hook a couple of times and their own batting was, well, a usual implosion, if you ask me. But they did put up a bit of a fight. It wasn't really the worst test match I've seen in a very long time. Ayaz, do you think Bangladesh can and should do more? They seem to have found a new star with a debut centurion now. Yeah, I mean, look, Zakir Hassan looked a very high-quality player. He's a youngster, you know, centurion debut against India. Is a big deal. But, you know, how he progresses from here will actually perhaps also define how Bangladesh emerge from what I think is a batting crisis they've got. Uh, they don't seem to have high-quality batsmen. Mushfikur Rahim is there. There's Sakibul Hassan, Litran Das. These are the big guys, but they've been around for 10-12 years. Shakib maybe even longer. But the consistency which you would expect from them is not coming any longer. And I, I think that's a big crisis for Bangladesh cricket. They've got a, you know, Mehdi Hassan Miraz, who's a, who's a very talented all-rounder. And he could also become a fine test player. So, for them, it's not looking extremely rosy, barring Zakir Hassan and Mehdi. They don't seem to have very good fast bowlers. They don't seem to have... In the, in the past, they had these... On their pitches, you would get guys like Sakib running through op- opposing teams, you know. So, that's not happening any longer. They had some decent batting. Sakib himself made some 80-something in the second innings. They fought... Or they resisted India for a while in the second inning. But, you know, to score 512 or something to win was never likely. And to bat out two days was also unlikely against an Indian attack, which despite Bumrah and Shami and and Jadeja missing, had enough firepower. So I think more gains for India from this match. Kuldeep Yadav coming into his own, picking up his best ever test match figures was a big deal. I thought Mohammad Siraj was very impressive in the first innings. Akshar Patel, on these kind of pitches, which you know, which Bangladesh may have thought would favour their bowlers, he can be a devastating bowler. And he, he helped India on the, on the last day to clinch victory, really enough. Okay, the just looking ahead a little bit, we have Australia visiting very soon. And this is a team that seems decent on paper. But like Ayaz just mentioned, Shami, Bumrah, Jadeja may be ready to come back. Who loses their spot? Is Ashwin safe? Is Kuldeep safe? Is Akshar safe? Ashwin should be safe in India. I think he's a match winner. Look, I mean, obviously, things didn't go according to plan. In Bangladesh, I know a lot of people, even on Twitter, have been talking about the line, the lengths, and whatnot and stuff. Look, I mean, give him a break. At the end of the day, I think the biggest plus for India is Kuldeep's performance. I think sometimes when we look at somebody's performance, it's almost at the uh, expense of somebody else not performing up to the mark. Let's be honest. I think, I mean, if I were to look at it that way, I think Ashwin's performance with the bat really helped. I mean, a team India in the test match. So it, it really depends on the way you look at it. I know he's there primarily as a bowler, but I think Ashwin is fantastic. There is no two ways about it. One of the biggest match winners a Indian test cricket has ever had, probably. And you look at also his contributions with the bat. But I think just going back to the point of uh, Jaspreet Bumrah, 
going back to the point of Ravindra Jadeja, look, these two are people who are coming at the back of an injury. Jadeja was supposed to have been a part of this team in Bangladesh, but obviously he's not deemed fit enough to play in the test match. Bumrah is again coming at the back of an injury. So we'll be curious to see how he goes because test match rigor is a completely different ball game altogether. So are you willing to go in with two players who are just coming at the back of an injury unless you are absolutely 100% not too sure how you're going to look at that. But particularly with respect to Ashwin, I don't see a reason why he should be dropped in India. Got it. Well, that's some interesting stuff coming up. Lots more cricket and lots more sporting action. Thank you, gentlemen, for your time. We will definitely be back to talk more about some of the other sporting action. For all of our fans around the world, with the World Cup now coming to a close, a lot of the club action returns, starting with the Premier League at the end of this week itself. So foes will turn friends again, possibly. It'll be very interesting to see how things are at PSG after this weekend. But exciting times again. Some of these guys who fought alongside each other for the biggest prize in the world are now going to face each other on the other sides of the pitch. Well, thank you so much as always for joining us. We'll be back with another episode next week. Cheers. Cheers.